Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Hello, 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 and welcome back to Criminal Broads, a true crime podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. You guys, today we're doing a two-part episode. I believe this is only our second two-part episode. A while ago, like a more than a year ago, two years ago maybe, we did a two-part episode on Jack the Ripper. Now, wait a minute, Tori. Jack the Ripper wasn't a woman. Or was she? <laughs> The two-part episode is about the theory that Jack the Ripper was a woman, and then the second episode is about the women brutally murdered by Jack the Ripper. So go check that out if you want. But anyway, today we're doing a two-part episode on a single woman who was so, shall we say, complex that I simply could not fit all the information I had on her into a single episode. So buckle up, guys. It's a wild ride. I want to thank a listener for notifying me of this woman's existence. I had never heard of Audrey Marie Hilly until this listener told me about her. And now I can't find the listener's name. So if you are the one who recommended this episode, please get in touch with me and tell me who you are. And I'll thank you in the next episode because you sent me down a very, very wild and winding path. So thank you. Before we get into this story, though, I have some great news for you all. A couple episodes ago, you remember we heard from Sister Eli and her story of being pressured into taking a plea deal, a very coercive plea deal, and we talked about the criminal justice system and many of the problems therein. Well, you all donated over $1,000 to the Women's Prison Association, and I'm so proud of you all. I'm just very thrilled to be like, Oh, yeah, those are my listeners. And also, I had told you about a petition that Sister Eli has started for the prison in Connecticut where her husband is currently incarcerated for life. The petition is about getting more recreational time for the men there and just better conditions. She said she was struggling to get the petition to get to about 800 signatures, and now it's over 1,500 signatures. And again, that's my listeners. That's my listeners. So her goal is to get the petition to 2,500. So let's do it. I know we can. I'm going to put the link back in the show notes. Just click it, sign it. It takes two seconds. Okay. Oh, The last thing I was going to say before we get into the story, I wanted to cite my main source for these episodes, which is a book called Poisoned Blood, A True Story of Murder, Passion, and an Astonishing Hoax by Philip E. Ginsburg. This book was invaluable in these two episodes, so I had to shout it out up front. And I hope you know I always, always, always list all my sources exhaustively in the show notes and on my website. So without further ado, let me think what era we're traveling back to. I mean, we're going to spend some time in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, but I think we're starting in 1960 in the tiny town of Anniston, Alabama. Let's meet our anti-heroine, Marie.
In the sleepy little city of Anniston, Alabama, a young mother was starting to act strange. It was 1960. She was pregnant with her second child. Her name was Audrey Marie Hilly, but she went by Marie. She was a 27-year-old white woman who had lived in and around Anniston for her entire life. Everyone knew her. A lot of people liked her at first. She and her husband and her little boy looked like a little sliver of the American dream. But now she was pregnant with a girl, and something had shifted within her. She was starting to go on long walks at night, long wandering walks to nowhere. She was writing letters to herself, pretending that they were from other men. She'd leave the letters around the house so that her husband would find them. Marie had a long history of making up stories about her life. She seemed to have had a fairly happy childhood, but she loved to tell stories about how her parents neglected her and her grandparents abused her. She grew up poor, but she said that she'd grown up terribly rich. She made up lovers to drive her other lovers mad. She often hinted that she had a twin sister. Everyone has their secrets, one of her friends said later. But Marie had more than most. All kinds of terrible secrets gnawing inside her. Marie was born in 1933 in a little village called Blue Mountain, which is now a suburb of Anniston, Alabama. She was the only child of two factory workers. Anniston was split in half. The west side was full of factories and factory workers, while the east side was where the bankers lived, the important businessmen, the politicians in their mansions. Marie was a west sider who always wanted to be an east sider. Though money was tight around the house, Marie's mother always made sure that Marie had the best of everything. Marie must have grown up feeling that she was special because she dressed better than her cousins and she ate better than her cousins. Her mom filled their fridge with fresh fruit and expensive cuts of meat. She sent Marie to tap dancing lessons. Marie was tiny and pretty and adorable, and she always got her way. Once, when her cousin refused to share a piece of cake with her, Marie bit her cousin on the stomach so hard that the bite mark didn't fade away for months. In junior high, Marie was voted prettiest girl. She dressed well, everybody always noticed it, and she knew how to pose for pictures. When she was almost 14, she met Frank Hilly, who was 18, and the two of them started dating. She became close with Frank's little sister, Frida. The two of them would remain close for years, and then they'd become mortal enemies. But back then, Frida looked up to Marie, who was this pretty, poised teenager full of fascinating stories. Marie would tell Frida all about how her parents had neglected her and her grandmother had raised her, and sometimes her parents didn't even bother to pick her up from her grandma's house for days. In most of her stories, Marie was either totally alone, the abused little rich girl that no one ever noticed, or she was a twin, connected spiritually and psychically with a beloved identical sister. 
Marie's biographer, Philip E. Ginsburg, says that Marie was obsessed with twinship, doubles, and alter egos from a young age. Her father had a twin brother, and her mother's side of the family had twins in it, too. So Marie would have grown up with twins on the brain. Both she and her father were also born under the sign of Gemini, the twin sign of the Zodiac, for what it's worth. But Philip Ginsburg also noticed, while he was poring over photos of Marie in high school, that she was always posing next to the same girl. This girl's name was Rachel Knight, and she was the class queen. Marie and Rachel looked a lot alike, and Marie emphasized that by dressing like Rachel did and styling her hair the same way. She joined the same clubs that Rachel joined. She became friends with Rachel. Such good friends, in fact, that she would nurse Rachel later in life when Rachel was dying of a brain tumor. Philip Ginsburg thinks that this was just one example of Marie trying to conjure up a twin for herself out of thin air. Although, with Marie, you could never be sure if she wanted to be your twin or to be you. In 1950, when Marie was finishing up her junior year of high school, she and Frank got married. Frank had already graduated and joined the Navy, and the two of them moved around a bit, living in California, and then Boston, and then back to Anniston. Marie got her first adult job as a secretary to a lawyer. With her first real paycheck, she bought a sewing machine for her mom and a fancy new suit for her dad. This would be the first of many, many secretary jobs she'd have. Now, people rarely agreed on what Marie did or even who she was, but everyone agreed on this one thing. She was a great secretary. She was often the executive secretary. Her efficient nature and natural intelligence made her a perfect fit for the fast-paced, high-pressure work of keeping a company running and keeping a wealthy man happy. Her first child, Mike, was born in 1953. Frank was working at a foundry, which is a factory that made cast iron pipes for sewage. Marie took some time off work to care for her son and then found herself another secretary job. They bought a little house, a starter home. They were planning to move into a bigger home later. But Marie got impatient, and so she hired an interior decorator to totally transform their place. This was a really weird move for someone in Marie's social circles— her friends all thought that it was an insane extravagance. None of them made that sort of money. And they were pretty sure that Marie and Frank didn't make that sort of money either. But Marie had always cared about how things looked. And now she was starting to spend a lot of money on appearances. She insisted on having the latest fashions to complement her green eyes. She was always upgrading her car. She went to the beauty salon regularly, and her brown hair, which she wore in a huge 50s puff, was always impeccable. Marie Hilly was a sophisticated lady, said one of her childhood acquaintances. She had pride in her looks, her dress. Frank complained good-naturedly to his friends that no one in the world could spend money like Marie could. Where was Marie getting all of this money, though? People weren't quite sure— she told one of her friends that her mother bought her a lot of gifts, but her mother was a factory worker, and the friend was pretty sure that Marie was lying about the source of these expensive items so that her husband wouldn't find out that she was the one buying them. Sure, Marie worked steadily, but she was always getting fired or leaving her jobs. She worked in a pattern. At first, everyone at the job would love her. Her supervisors would rave about how competent she was, and she'd make friends with her female co-workers easily. 
She was funny, confident, charismatic. But inevitably, things would start to get weird. Her co-workers would start to back away from her, or Marie would turn against them. As her sister-in-law, Frida, remembered later, she would think things that weren't really the way it was. She would think people were doing things against her, trying to hurt her in some way, and she would drop her relationship with them. And so Marie would leave or be fired and find a newer, better job. Her co-workers may have grown to distrust her, but her bosses always loved her, always. As her biographer wrote, the list of men who employed her as secretary sounded like a who's who of the Aniston power structure. They were all Eastsiders, of course. They were the men who owned construction companies and manufacturing companies and banks and the city's waterworks. And her relationships with these powerful men always seemed a little more intimate than your typical boss-secretary connection. She would work late, and she would come home with wads of cash. $800, $1,000. She modeled for one of her bosses, who fancied himself an amateur photographer. She would go to another boss's house and swim in his swimming pool. That boss later bought her a pair of diamond earrings. A third boss went even further and bought a pony for her kids. Frank laughed it off, and Marie explained that the cash came from doing extra typing. But everyone knew that Marie always wanted to be in a higher class than she was. And everyone saw her spending a lot of money. And people couldn't help wondering exactly what she was doing in those east side offices. Let's take a quick break to hear from this episode's sponsors. Okay, I feel like we don't talk about food a lot on this podcast now that I think about it. There was a very distinct IHOP incident in the Amy Bishop episode that you might remember. But let's talk about food right now. Cooking, huh? We all want to do it. More of it, maybe. We know it's good for us. We know it tastes amazing when it's done right. But none of us have enough time. Enter Hello. Fresh, America's number one meal kit that makes home cooking easy, fun, and affordable, which is pretty much check, 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 the three boxes I want checked when I'm cooking. They have meals that are ready in 20 minutes or less. You don't have to meal plan. You don't have to go to the grocery store. I am really into this idea these days because I'm going to be honest, making this podcast, keeping my baby happy doing my writing, promoting my book, leaves very little time for long, you know, strolls down the grocery aisle where I pick up a perfect plum and gently consider what I might make with it. So HelloFresh's wide variety of easy, delicious options feels right for me in this time of my life. And if it feels right for you, too, I've got a great deal for you. Go to HelloFresh.com slash CriminalBroads12 and use code CRIMINALBROADS12 for 12 free meals, including free shipping. That's like me taking you out to dinner 12 times. Do it, guys. That's HelloFresh.com slash CRIMINALBROADS12. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. These days, at the tail end, fingers crossed, fingers crossed, of a pandemic, what are you doing to take care of yourself? Something, I hope. I'm personally trying to have green smoothies more often. Cliché, I know. 
taking care of our bodies as best we can, trying to get sleep, trying to drink water. But what about taking care of your mind? We can't forget to do that, guys, which is where BetterHelp comes in. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to, if you have Zoom fatigue like the rest of us. It is much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your new therapist in under 48 hours. So join the millions of people who are seeing what therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself, not just during a pandemic, because you are your greatest asset. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Criminal Broads listeners will get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash criminal broads. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash criminal broads. Or you can find the link in the show notes. If you didn't look too closely, and if you ignored the whispers about Marie and her bosses, Marie and Frank looked great. They looked like an all-American couple making a lovely little 1950s life for themselves in an idyllic little city. Well, it was idyllic if you ignored things like the time a bunch of men from the Ku Klux Klan attacked a group of black-and-white civil rights activists called the Freedom Riders with pipes, chains, bats, and firebombs while the police did nothing— But it does seem that Marie was largely ignoring things like that. So, yes, it was Frank and Marie forever, right? High school sweethearts living the dream. Sure, Marie was spending too much money on fancy clothes, but wasn't that what wives were supposed to do? Sure, Frank was drinking a bit too much, but wasn't that what husbands were supposed to do? Their son Mike remembered one terrifying night when his dad vomited in the street and then laid down in front of their car, yelling, Run me over! Put me out of my misery! As Marie, in the driver's seat, started to accelerate towards him. But hey, don't all couples fight. Seven years after Mike was born, his little sister, Carol, arrived. It was during this second pregnancy that Marie started taking her long, spooky nighttime walks and writing letters from fake lovers for Frank to find. People couldn't help noticing that Marie seemed a lot less happy with Carol than she was with Mike. She made comments implying that she hadn't wanted a second child, and she was much more controlling of her daughter. As Carol grew into a preteen and then a teenager, the two of them fought more and more, screaming at each other until Marie would yell, I can't take any more of this. You're going to kill me. At the same time, Marie indulged Carol, even buying her a motorcycle when she was a preteen. They were caught in this vicious cycle of indulgence and control. It was like Marie was trying to buy her daughter's obedience. It was weird that Marie bought her daughter a motorcycle, though, because Marie didn't like that Carol was kind of a tomboy. Carol wasn't like her cousin Lisa, who was girly and popular and named homecoming queen and senior class beauty. Marie wanted Carol to be like her cousin Lisa, But Carol wore jeans, not dresses, and she didn't like makeup. Why are you always out with girls? Her mom asked. You never go out with boys. 
Marie wouldn't voice her explicit suspicions about Carol's sexuality until several years later, and Carol herself never liked to talk about it to the press. But Marie wanted her daughter to be a tiny princess, all dresses and tap dancing lessons, just like she had been. Maybe she wanted Carol to be, in a way, her twin. But Carol was her own person, growing up into someone totally different than Marie was. And it seemed like Marie couldn't stand this. Throughout all of the drama with her mother, Carol and her dad were close. Marie couldn't stand this, either. She felt like everyone was ganging up on her. For years, she had recited a narrative that she had been an unloved child— at work, she'd grow paranoid, insisting that she was an unloved co-worker. And now, she told people that she was an unloved mother. And what does an unloved mother do? Get revenge, of course. By 1974, the hippie movement had come and gone, and the Hilly family was undergoing several changes. Marie had a new job. She was the executive secretary to handsome, wealthy Walter Clinton. Frank had been promoted at his job. Carol was 14 and was discovering her sexuality. And Mike was out of the house. He was finishing up college and planning to become a pastor. He'd also gotten married. So that Thanksgiving, Frank decided to take Mike's father-in-law to a football game. The father-in-law went by the nickname Happy, Happy Henderson. So the two men got in the car and drove away to see some football. It was an awkward drive. Frank Hilly and Happy Henderson didn't really know each other. And so Happy thought it was weird that Frank wanted to talk. Like, he wanted to talk, talk. Frank seemed tense, preoccupied, and he kept hinting that he really needed to get something off his chest. He was smoking nervously and saying ominous things like, maybe Marie ought to see a doctor. Happy didn't really understand what he meant. Frank went on, there's something I want to tell you, but I don't want it to get around. I need to talk to somebody. Happy replied awkwardly, a minister is always a good person to talk to. And Frank responded, I kind of got turned against the church. And that was that. But Frank kept trying to tell other people what was on his mind. He told his son that things weren't so great at home. He told another friend that he kept getting these weird fevers that came and went. At another visit with his son, Frank managed to get out one of the things that was troubling him. He said that he'd gotten sick at work, he'd come home early, and he had found Marie in bed with her boss, Walter Clinton. His son, Mike, was shocked to hear this, but Mike had developed the habit from growing up with Marie of separating himself from his parents' drama, of sticking his head in the sand a little bit. And now he saw that his father was clearly haunted, but he didn't do anything about it. Frank never did get the chance to fully unburden himself. Instead, he grew sicker and sicker, and he was starting to get disoriented. And by May of 1975, he was suddenly in the hospital. He was vomiting. He was talking to imaginary people. 
He was reading his bedsheets as though they were the newspaper. His skin was bright yellow. He drifted in and out of clarity. At one point, he looked at his son and said, heartbreakingly, Am I going crazy? Frank died on May 25th. The doctors said that he had died of infectious hepatitis. An autopsy confirmed this. County health inspectors showed up at Frank's workplace, testing the water and trying to figure out where his infection had come from, but they couldn't find anything. A few weeks later, Frank's workplace sent Marie $31,000, his life insurance payment. Finally, it had paid off to be married to someone from the west side of town. With her husband dead, Marie kept on shopping. She spent his life insurance money on things like a jade and diamond necklace, an earring set, a diamond ring for her mother, a car for her daughter, and a new washing machine for her son and his wife. But she was also starting to act stranger and stranger. Carol noticed that Marie was changing. She had developed a habit of staring into mirrors for long, eerie stretches. She became obsessed with ghost stories and tales of people who had disappeared. Sometimes, when Marie was out of the house, she would call home, and Carol would pick up, and Marie would disguise her voice and say, I'm going to kill myself. Carol also discovered a letter, tucked in a drawer, about an imaginary twin sister named Mandy who had been taken away from Marie at birth. And the lying. Carol couldn't help noticing that her mother was starting to lie about things constantly, like where she was and what she'd been doing and what was in that hypodermic syringe she was holding. Yes, Marie had started giving people injections. Her mother was diagnosed with breast cancer and was getting weaker and weaker. And when no nurse was around, Marie would take over, giving her injections of quote-unquote medicine. Her mother died in January of 1977. Marie also wielded a syringe around her daughter-in-law. She'd asked her son and daughter-in-law to move in with her, and they did, but then they kept getting sick, and her daughter-in-law was actually hospitalized four times while living with Marie. She even suffered a miscarriage from one of these attacks of a mysterious illness. It was so weird because... Marie kept feeding her this special vegetable soup, but it didn't seem to make her any better. It took a while, but finally Marie's son and daughter-in-law moved out. Marie was too controlling, too invasive, too much. Of course, this only added more fuel to Marie's fire of nobody loves me. Speaking of fire... Literal fires started springing up with suspicious regularity when Marie was around. Marie had started calling the police constantly, saying, Ah, there's a fire in my hall closet. The fires sprung up at her neighbor's house, too. One fire even started in the apartment next to her son's new place. 
And it wasn't just fires. Marie called the police and said she was getting creepy phone calls. She was getting death threats. Someone was looking through her window. Someone was turning the lights in her kitchen on and off. The police showed up, dutifully, but they could never find out who was torturing the poor woman like this. By the way, one of the policemen started sleeping with Marie after she slid her hand up his inner thigh and said, I'm so alone, and I need a man to help me. The cops would try to tap her phone to record all these horrible calls that she said she was getting, but every time they put the equipment on her phone, the calls would mysteriously stop. Of course, they'd start right up again once the equipment was taken off. Oh, and there was more. Someone left a creepy note on Marie's screen door. She showed it to the cops. It was written in blocky handwriting. It kind of looked like a kid had written it, or maybe someone using their non-dominant hand. It read, You are going to be sorry if you don't move. Marie did move eventually. She moved in with her sister-in-law, Frida, and her mother-in-law, Carrie. They noticed that she always slept on the couch, never in a bed, and she slept with a crowbar next to her. They noticed that things kept catching on fire when Marie was around, and that someone had cut the phone line. Marie took out a life insurance policy on herself and on Carol, until Carol was covered for $50,000. She started a torrid, long-distance affair with an old high school crush, told him she had cancer, and he mailed her $3,000. But that was just another day in Marie's life. She stole a credit card from her son. That was pretty typical, too. Oh, and Carrie, her mother-in-law, started throwing up. But no one thought much of it. After all, she was getting old. And then Carol got sick, the daughter, the one Marie had always had so much trouble with. Carol started throwing up the morning after prom. It was April of 1979, and Carol just thought that she was hungover. She'd been smoking weed and drinking Tom Collins cocktails. But the throwing up didn't stop. Instead, it got worse and worse until finally she went to the hospital where she'd come and go for the next four months. The doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong with her. Carol couldn't keep anything down, even when her mother sweetly brought her little jars of baby food. Marie told relatives that Carol had leukemia and gratefully borrowed a few thousand dollars for her treatments. Outside of the hospital, Marie continued to spin wild stories— at one point, she told her son that she'd been driven off the highway by thieves who stole her purse and cut her on the arm. Her stories were getting so insane that Mike asked his mother if she'd ever thought about getting a psychiatric evaluation. This was a big step for Mike. He really tried hard not to get involved with his mother's issues. But now, his mother snapped at him, "'There's nothing wrong with me. I don't need any help.'" Later, she served him a glass of Kool-Aid that made him throw up. And Carol was getting worse and worse. She had always been tiny, like her mother, but now she was skeletal. She was obsessed with getting better, and sometimes she felt like her mother was her only ally. 
Other times, though, she thought that her mom was a little bit scary. One night, Carol woke out of a feverish sleep and saw that Marie was standing in her room, just standing there in the darkness, perfectly still, perfectly quiet. Carol felt a cold shiver run down her spine. She didn't move until her mother left. Sometimes Marie would give Carol injections, saying that it was medication that would take away that horrible, nauseated feeling. But the injections made it hard for Carol to feel her fingers or her toes. By August 22nd, Carol was back in the hospital, and she was so emaciated that the doctors wondered if she was anorexic. She could hardly walk or use her hands. Thinking that maybe her problems were mental, the doctors transferred her to a psychiatric ward. It was there that Marie injected her again with a cloudy liquid, murmuring that this was a special medicine that had helped another little girl to walk. Marie also told her daughter not to tell anyone about this special medicine. But Carol did tell someone. She told a friend. And her friend thought that this was so weird that the friend mentioned it to Frida, Marie's sister-in-law. And Frida agreed that it was definitely weird. All this talk of hypodermic needles made Frida remember something that she'd kind of suppressed. Frida had always thought it was strange how quickly her brother Frank had died. And once, he had said something to her about how Marie had been giving him shots. Frida also remembered that Frank had this red spot on his arm that kind of looked like an injection mark. So Frida now talked to Mike, Marie's son, and the two of them conveyed their fears to the hospital. The doctors there decided that, okay, they were going to run tests on Carol for heavy metal poisoning. When she learned about this, Marie promptly checked Carol out of that hospital and into a fresh new one. In the meantime, Marie had troubles outside of the hospital. She was arrested for writing bad checks while Carol was in the hospital, and then she was released with the understanding that she'd come back for a hearing. And then, of course, she never showed up for the hearing, so she was arrested again. In a way, this was perfect timing. Jail was the only way to keep her away from her daughter. While Marie was locked up, her relatives told a doctor at the new hospital that they were afraid Marie was poisoning Carol. This doctor knew that there was a pretty simple way to check for arsenic poisoning. You just looked at your patient's hands. If someone has been ingesting arsenic for weeks, their nails will get these white horizontal lines across them. These are called Mies lines. The doctor took Carol's hand and looked at it. Every one of her fingernails had a white line across it. It was arsenic poisoning. Either you did it yourself, the doctor told her, or someone tried to do you in. Carol said later, The first thing I thought was, Mother. Marie was interrogated by detectives. 
She eventually admitted that she had given Carol several injections, but she insisted that the injections were medicine that she'd purchased from, um, oh, the mother-in-law of a nurse named Toots. It was all perfectly rational, okay? She just purchased medicine from a nurse's mother-in-law and injected it into her daughter. Outside of the jail walls, Marie's family members were starting to turn on her. Frida, her long-suffering sister-in-law, went through Marie's things and found a medicine bottle full of milky-looking arsenic and a jar of Cowley's rat and mouse poison, which also contained arsenic. Mike wrote a secret letter to the coroner confessing his darkest thoughts. It is my belief that she injected my dad with arsenic the same way she did my sister, he wrote. Frank Hilly was exhumed. In the meantime, Marie was released, which infuriated many of her family members. By now, most of them considered her a cold-blooded murderer. Another of her sisters-in-law, named Jewel, was so furious that she'd started threatening to kill Marie herself. Needless to say, her family had refused to pay her $14,000 bail, but Marie didn't need her family when she had her old bosses. Several locals, including an old boss, said that they'd pay the $14,000 if she didn't show up, and so Marie waltzed out of jail. She went to stay at a motel under a fake name, Emily Stevens, just in case that sister-in-law decided to get serious about the whole murdering Marie thing. Marie's lawyers checked her into the motel and told her that they'd come by a few days later, on Sunday, to prepare her for the court date. Marie agreed to the plan. Sunday came, and one of her lawyers headed over to her motel room. But Marie wasn't there. Instead, he found a note. The note kind of made it sound like Marie had been kidnapped. It read, You let her straight to me. You will hear from me. Two days later, Marie's aunt, Margaret, saw with terror that her home had been invaded. Someone had smashed the glass of her back door and taken a bunch of her clothes, plus her ID, her luggage, some money, and her car. They'd left a note, too. It read, Do not call the police. We will burn you out if you do. We found what we want. And that wasn't even the end of these ominous notes. There was a third note sent directly to the police that talked about both Marie and about a woman named Doris Ford. Now, Doris Ford had had the bad luck to be Marie's neighbor back in the day, and she'd experienced some of the same quote-unquote strange happenings that Marie had experienced. The crank phone calls, the mysterious fires, and so on. So this note implied that some evil genius was out there planning to kidnap both Marie and Doris. This note read, When it's no fun to see her scared anymore, I'll get the hilly bitch. I'll get her when and where she's not expecting me. You won't catch me. Then you can start watching the Ford bitch. You are a stupid cop. Nearly as stupid as the hillies and the Fords. After that, I have a few others on my list. You can start earning your pay. What were the police supposed to think? Was there an evil madman on the loose, kidnapping Marie and terrorizing her aunt and her neighbor? If you took the notes at face value, it sure seemed that poor, innocent Marie was in an awful lot of danger. In fact, 
She was the victim here. That poor woman. She'd been terrorized for years with those creepy phone calls and those fires and the people spying on her and the death of her husband and the illness of her daughter. And of course, who could forget the note that was left on her door? The one that read, You are going to be sorry if you don't move. The problem was that all of these notes were written in the same blocky handwriting, and at least one of them was written on the back of an envelope that had been addressed to Carol, Marie's daughter. It was pretty obvious that Marie had just written all of them herself. There was no madman on the loose. She was the madman on the loose. And like a good, mad villain, Marie had vanished into the sunset without leaving a trace. She was about to change her name and give herself a fresh new backstory. She was about to bring back her twin. No one in Anniston, Alabama, would see her for the next three years. Where have you gone, Marie Hilly? Our nation turns its terrified eyes to you. Where is Marie going, everyone? To find out, you're going to have to come back here next week. Same time, same place. Sit down with me, and I'll tell you the rest of the story. Let's just say there is a makeover montage involved. All right, thank you as always for listening, and a big thank you to the amazing actress Alexandra Taylor for doing the ominous notes that people kept finding all over the place that Marie totally didn't write herself. Thank you so much, Alex, and thank you to this episode's new patrons, Victoria T., Molly H., Emily K., Sabrina M., and Rachel M. Thank you all so much for supporting the podcast. Everyone else, you can go to patreon.com slash criminalbroads if you would like to, I'll be honest, throw a few bucks my way every month. I'm not going to pretend it's anything more glamorous than that that I'm doing over here. And don't forget to sign the petition for better conditions for Sister Eli's husband and all the men who are incarcerated with him. Me, you, we all don't necessarily feel the same way about every aspect of the criminal justice system, and that's okay. But I think we can agree that we want a humane system. We don't want to be locking people up and treating them as though they're not human. So hopefully this idea of just more recreational time for inmates, better living conditions is something we can all agree on. So I'd love if you sign that petition. It's in the show notes. And... With that, I'm going to leave you here, and we'll see you next week to find out what Aubrey Marie Hilly did next. Have a great one. Bye. Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty, guilty of loving you. Seeking the truth never gets old. 
Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.